Vision Access, a magazine by, for, and about people with low vision. Volume 15, Number 4, Winter, 2008. Published quarterly for members in three formats, large print, four-track cassette and email. Copyright 2008 by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, a not-for-profit organization affiliated with the American Council of the Blind. Recorded by the volunteers of the Northern California Unit of Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. Council of Citizens for Low Vision International, 1155 15th Street Northwest, Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005, 1-800-733-2258, on the web, cclvi.org, info at cclvi.org. Views expressed in Vision Access are those of the individual contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the editor or of CCLVI. All rights revert to individual contributors upon publication. Vision Access welcomes submissions from people with low vision, from professionals such as ophthalmologists, optometrists, low vision specialists, and everyone with something substantive to contribute to the ongoing discussion of low vision and all of its ramifications. Submissions are best made as attachments to email or on a 3.5-inch disk in a format compatible with Microsoft Word. Submissions may also be made in clear TypeScript. Vision Access cannot assume responsibility for lost manuscripts. Deadlines for submissions are March 1, June 1, September 1, and December 1. Submissions may be mailed to Joyce Kleiber, Editor, 6 Hillside Road, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, or J-M-K-L-E-I-B-E-R at hotmail.com. Contents from the Editor, page 4, Letter to the Editor, page 4, Organization News, President's Message by John Horst, page 5, Fred Scheiger Scholarship Applications, page 7, Chapter News, page 7, CCLVI Dues, page 9, People Meet Paula R. Warren Peace, page 10, Vision Changes Got You Down, by Phyllis Burson, Ph.D., page 18, Advocacy, Access to Assets for People with Disabilities, page 23, Flying the Unfriendly Skies, Airline Travel for Folks with Vision Loss, by Bob Ashby, page 28, Pedestrian Safety in Quiet Cars, by Jean Lozano, page 32, Terminology, What Should You Call a Person with a Disability, by Yoji Cole, page 33, Science and Health, Support Group for Women Living with Breast Cancer and Vision Loss, page 37, Choosing Lighting That Works for Your Vision, by Dr. Bill Takeshita, page 39, Studies Suggest Ways to Preserve Your Sight, page 50, Recipes, Eggnog Pound Cake, page 52, Pumpkin Currant Bread, page 53, Book Announcement, Seeing in the Darkness, page 54. Assistive Technology, Research Seeks Mobility Devices for Independent Travel, page 55. Resources, page 57. 2009 Membership Application, page 58. CCLVI Officers and Board Members, page 59. Page 4, from the Editor. Welcome to the Winter 2008 issue of Vision Access. Many articles in this issue are based on presentations offered at two low-vision conventions last October and November. Bernice Kandarian, President of the California Council of Citizens with Low Vision, and CCLVI's past president, planned programs for one of these conventions. 
Barbara Milleville, CCLVI's first vice president and president of the National Capital Citizens with Low Vision, planned the program for the Mid-Atlantic Convention. I am grateful for the work these ladies did to plan these fine programs. I hope that you, our readers, will enjoy summaries of some of the presentations. Thanks also to everyone else who contributed ideas and articles. Best wishes for happy holidays. JMK, 12-8-2008. Letter to the Editor. I just wanted to let everyone know that I did receive a grant from Diebold to have our resource booklet printed. This booklet was compiled by the Stark County Chapter of ACB of Ohio. We had 2,000 copies printed in October. We took copies to all the ophthalmologists in Stark County. I also mailed some to people who I had on a list. One lady wrote to me and said the book was wonderful. I gave a copy to a parent, and she thought it was very helpful. The doctors haven't had our resource booklets long enough to let me know how their patients liked them. I will let you know more in the next issue. I do have an appointment to be interviewed about this project on a radio station on the 2nd of December. I did send press releases to three local papers in late November, but I don't know if these were printed. Carolyn Burley, page 5, Organization News, President's Message by John Horst. CCLVI necessary. Is a person with low vision sighted or blind? Should people with low vision endeavor to function as sighted or as blind? Like most questions of this type, it isn't often too easy to give an oversimplified answer. Low vision is low vision. People with this disability are not totally blind, but may not have enough vision to function as fully sighted people. Some of the skills of blindness may be useful, but they may not be needed. Some of us, depending on our degree of visual loss, have tried to function as sighted people. Perhaps many of us are still trying and have been forced to learn that on many occasions this will not work. As a result, we are compelled to conclude that we are not blind, as most people think of blindness, nor are we able to handle many of the demands of life as fully sighted people do. Page 6. That is why there is a compelling need to have an organization like CCLVI, a group of people who have low vision, that come together to directly address the problems and concerns of people with low vision. There are, of course, additional sources from which we can learn. These include medicine, education, research, and rehabilitation. However, no other group fully understands what will work for us or not work for us. This is why we must continue to work together to make CCLVI a dynamic and challenging organization. Through this Vision Access magazine, through our website, through our chapters and committees, and at our convention each year, we must work for a better understanding of what low vision is and provide information that people with low vision need to live full and meaningful lives. As individual members of CCLVI, it is our privilege and challenge to reach out to others with limited sight and have them become a part of CCLVI. Page 7, Fred Scheigert Scholarship Applications. CCLVI Scholarship Committee will be accepting applications for three Fred Scheigert Scholarships from January 1, 2009 to midnight on the last day of February 2009. Find and submit applications online at cclvi.org. Make sure your application is complete and that supporting documentation is sent on time. Include a report from your eye care professional. Chapter News, California Council of Citizens with Low Vision. 
Our chapter held its convention in conjunction with that of the California Council of the Blind last October in Los Angeles. Please refer to summaries of some of the fine topics addressed at our meetings featured in this issue of Vision Access. For information about our chapter, call 800-733-2258. Metropolitan Council of Low Vision individuals with members in New York, New Jersey, and New England looking good, looking close. Page 8. In October, our chapter hosted a meeting in Penn Station, a major New York City rail terminal serving Amtrak and two commuter rail lines. Representatives of one of them, the Long Island Railroad, listened to our feedback on the ways the railroad effectively meets the special needs of vision-impaired travelers and areas where improvement is possible. The rail staff expressed appreciation for the information, which included how to identify the specific name of each of the several primary corridors in Penn Station, with signage that will aid low-vision readers of large approachable signs and the general public, too. In that way, members of the public can in turn be more informative when offering assistance. In November, Chapter President Ken Stewart accepted an invitation from the head of the Department of Buses in New York City to take a ride on a sample of the latest bus design being ordered in volume. A system of electronic, visual, and audible announcements was also demonstrated. The audience receiving the critique included representatives of the company seeking a contract to install the sign system. There will be automated announcements of the stops in the interior for occupants and the bus route on the exterior for boarding passengers. For information about this chapter, call 845-986-2955. National Capital Citizens with Low Vision. Our chapter president, Barbara Milleville, was responsible for planning the program for the second annual Mid-Atlantic ACB Affiliates Convention, which met last November in Roslyn, Virginia. Look for summaries of some of the fine presentations at our convention in some of the articles in this issue of Vision Access. More reports will be featured in the next issue of this magazine. For information about our chapter, call 703-645-8716 or email nccLV at yahoo.com. Please submit your CCLVI dues by February 15, 2009. We appreciate being able to count you as one of our members. If you are a member of a CCLVI chapter, you may pay your dues through your chapter. Page 10. People. Meet Paula R. Warren Peace. Editor's Note. Paula is a Fred Scheigert Scholarship recipient and a Ph.D. candidate at Mississippi State University. Interest in Rehabilitation One of my earliest experiences in rehabilitation, or what I defined as rehabilitation at the time, was writing a thesis on the teenage drug abuse problem in public schools in my hometown, Shreveport, Louisiana. I devoted one and a half years of graduate work to this project. In my research, I used statistics of national, state, and local illegal drug usage among teenagers. My thesis was presented to the mayor of Shreveport. The MAD Foundation used my study as a resource for prevention strategies. When I completed my research thesis, I received a Master of Liberal Arts from Louisiana State University with a major area of study in communications slash public relations. I was a substitute teacher throughout my graduate studies, and I continued to substitute teach for another year. 
My vision deterioration began to interfere with my capabilities as a teacher. In the late 1980s, I started an in-home tutoring business. I worked with elementary and middle school-age children on all subjects. The students' achievements were rewarding to me, but my fear of losing eyesight slowly caused me to resign from this work. It took me some time to finally come to terms with my vision problem. Page 11. As my vision continued to deteriorate, so did my career aspirations. Retinitis pigmentosa was not only robbing my eyesight, but I was allowing it to rob me of my life. I eventually faced reality and reached out to a vocational rehabilitation counselor for help. I enrolled in a rehabilitation center for the blind. This was the most difficult and best decision I have made. I spent several years learning how to gain control of my life again. Previously, I had allowed the fear of blindness lead me through life. My rehabilitation dealt with my fear. I think it is fairly easy for people to say they can teach, lead, or be effective rehabilitation counselors. However, I believe the best teachers, role models, leaders, and counselors are those who have personally experienced the rehabilitation process. This experience, in my opinion, is my strongest qualification for being privileged to pursue a doctorate in rehabilitation. Page 12. Rehabilitation is part of my life, and it is ongoing, a process. I have examined my life in this narrative and pointed out some highlights. The unspoken is what should probably be emphasized. I explain the positive progression of my academic pursuits. However, before I returned to graduate school, I struggled with despair and fear. I was afraid of blindness and was simply overwhelmed. Great counselors, a rehabilitation program, and a strong will changed my life and enabled me to regain my self-confidence. I have learned adaptive methods available to blind people and am pursuing my lifelong goal, obtaining a Ph.D. The life skills learning process associated with blindness has given me insight into affecting rehabilitation education and leadership. I plan to use my skills, ambition, and abilities to propel my career in the helping profession of rehabilitation work. Career Objectives Essential among my career objectives is my desire to change the stigma associated with disabilities specific to blindness. My educational achievements will enable me to act on that desire. In 2000 and 2001, I earned dual master's degrees in industrial-slash-organizational psychology and counseling and guidance at Mississippi State University. I am now pursuing a Ph.D. in counseling with a specialization in rehabilitation and a minor in public policy and administration. These degrees will allow me the privilege and opportunity to serve other people with disabilities, employers, and the community. Page 13. For me, it is not enough to merely work and be productive as an employee of an organization. I feel it is imperative to encourage people with disabilities by being a role model. Trained as an I.O. psychologist, I will work to provide viable vocational options to others. I strategically plan my academic training to encompass two vital areas in effective human resource management, areas that will provide me with the expertise required to design, develop, and implement hiring procedures and training programs to effectively integrate people with disabilities into the workforce as productive employees. My completed training in counseling will accentuate the humanistic focus of employee relations. The combination of the two curricula, industrial psychology and rehabilitation counseling, 
will provide me with the tools needed to understand the challenges facing people with disabilities in employment and the professional skills necessary to alleviate obstacles to employment. Page 14. Society is more accepting of evidence supporting a caregiving attitude regarding disabilities rather than viewing the person with a disability as a potential asset to an organization or community. It is unfortunate and inappropriate for industry to further this viewpoint. Labor statistics for the 21st century predict a workforce of diversity, suggesting that prosperous companies may need assistance in welcoming employees with disabilities since the diversified workforce includes those workers. As part of a master's degree internship, I designed a guide for prospective employers entitled Hiring the Blind Worker, an Employer's Handbook. It is my desire to educate leaders in industry so that they can make effective hiring choices that include candidates with disabilities. Upon completion of my Ph.D. in rehabilitation counseling with a minor in public policy and administration, I hope to make a difference in disability perceptions and policy. Additionally, I hope to further employment research of people with disabilities in a rehabilitation training setting. Page 15, as principal investigator, I have had manuscripts published in several peer-reviewed journals, Senior Surfing, Computer Use, Aging, and Formal Training, 2008, was published in the Association for the Advancement of Computing and Education Journal, and Effects of Race, Gender, and Other Characteristics of Legally Blind Consumers on Homemaker Closure, 2004, was published in the Journal of Rehabilitation. The second article received the 2005 National Rehabilitation Association Job Placement and Development Research Award. In 2003, I co-authored a manuscript entitled Strategies for Delivery of Equitable VR Services to Minorities with Visual Impairments, an evaluation of Title I state plans that was published in the Journal of Rehabilitation Administration. My doctoral research provides an opportunity for me to gain insight into the employment issues for individuals facing personal challenges. Also, my vocational counseling background provides me with the expertise to design and implement employment strategies for people with disabilities. I have parlayed my interest of improving professional VR counselors' effectiveness into research publications as well. In 2005, I co-authored Are More Tasks More Taxing? Mental Workload Assessment of Certified Rehabilitation Counselors. This article was published in the Vocational Evaluation and Career Assessment Professionals Journal. Page 16. Getting the job can be only half the battle. People with disabilities have to make the necessary life adjustments to coincide with their vocation. By working to provide proper education and training in the use of adaptive techniques, I will contribute to disabling the unproductive attitude of I can't held by many individuals. Equally, I hope to contribute by disassembling the employment barriers constructed under the same perceptual premise by working to educate industry on the positive performance abilities of workers with disabilities These are the personal and professional objectives I plan to achieve after completion of my Ph.D. Achievements. As a graduate student researcher, I worked as an Ann Sullivan Macy Fellow at the Rehabilitation Research and Training Center on Blindness and Low Vision, 
RRTC-BLV. In 2007, I was recognized by the American Counseling Association for my pro bono counseling services to Virginia Tech University students. Page 17. I was awarded the 2006 Personal Achievement Award given by the Rehabilitation Association of Mississippi and was inducted into Phi Kappa Phi National Collegiate Honor Society. I received the 2004 Graduate Student Woman of the Year Award from the President's Commission on the Status of Women. In 2003, I was awarded the Mississippi State University College of Education Graduate Research Award. I have obtained licensure in the state of Louisiana as a licensed professional counselor, LPC number 2956, and a licensed vocational rehabilitation counselor, LRC number 709. I am also a national certified counselor, NCC. While at MSU, I have worked as a doctoral supervisor of master's level counseling students and group facilitator in group work courses. Most recently, I have been offered a subcontract with Heritage of America and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs to work independently with veterans who have disabilities and want to return to work. I am excited about this new work and look forward to assisting our nation's veterans in fulfilling their career objectives despite any disability they have encountered. Recent Personal Challenge Beginning in September 2007, I have been dealing with a personal medical issue that has taken precedent over my academic and career objectives. I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. I have had a bilateral mastectomy and completed six months of chemotherapy treatments. I am currently undergoing radiation therapy and hormone treatments. I am pleased to report that my July 14, 2008 PET and CT scans revealed negative results. No cancer. I am able and ready to complete my doctorate. I have faced the challenges of blindness during my life, and I view this cancer as another challenge that I will deal with just as successfully. This will only make me stronger and more eager to help and serve others who face similar challenges. Through my academic efforts and life experiences, I hope to continue to serve as a positive and accomplished role model for people who are blind. Page 18. Vision Changes Got You Down by Phyllis Burson, Ph.D. Editor's Note. Dr. Phyllis Burson gave this talk at the Mid-Atlantic ACB Affiliates Convention. I was born with limited vision. My vision loss spanned over 28 years. At age 11, my vision got worse. Page 19. At age 19, when I was sitting in a college classroom, I suddenly saw some blurriness. I called my parents who went with me to my ophthalmologist who said, You have congenital cataracts. I've always known that, but I just assumed the cataracts would never get any worse, so I never mentioned it. But my vision got progressively worse. At age 27, I had cataract surgery, which started out being successful. Then I got glaucoma, which was related to my cataract surgery. For a year, my vision fluctuated from better to worse over and over again. Measuring these changes took over my life for that year. Then, all of a sudden, there was a huge bleed and I couldn't see anything. I knew that was it. In a way, this was a relief, even though it was scary. Finally, I could adjust to something that wasn't going to change. But all through those years of losing my vision, I went through a lot of anger about losing it, a lot of insecurity. Each time my vision changed, I had to change the way I was doing things. 
I remember cooking, and suddenly I couldn't see whether a fourth cup measuring cup was full. I had to use my finger to see that it was full. For a while I got so angry that I didn't cook. I refused to use a cane for way longer than I should have. Page 20. This was because whenever I did use a cane, I could see other people looking at it, and that was embarrassing to me. That was pride. I didn't want to be blind to be that kind of different person. How has my vision loss affected my profession? Both ways. My colleagues can drive to two or three offices to meet clients. I don't have that option. It's more challenging for me to complete paperwork related to my work. On the other hand, being a clinical psychologist is a talking profession. Talking, communicating, interacting is all pretty easy for me. So my profession has been affected both positively and negatively, but more positive. I've had three people in my whole professional life who came to me, discovered that I was visually impaired, and walked out. But that's a very small number. Many people have said, I feel I can talk to you more because you can't see me, my reactions, and so on. I had trouble getting jobs. This is one of the reasons I went into private practice. I did work at a counseling center for a couple of years. That worked out pretty well until they got a new director. He told me that people were ending counseling with me more quickly than from others because of my blindness. I checked it out in the office records and found it was not true. Page 21. But that's the kind of discrimination you get sometimes. The difficulties we have when we face vision loss depend on how our vision is lost, how long it takes, how quickly it goes, what is important to us in life, the things we enjoy most about seeing. It's somewhat different for each one of us. This may be no longer feeling at ease in social situations because we're not getting the information that others have. We can't recognize faces or move closer to someone we want to talk with. Vision loss takes every part of our life and changes it. Often it's the little things that add up. Is it an advantage to lose your sight gradually? Some people believe this allows time to adapt and learn new skills as well as time for family to adapt to changes. Some people would rather lose their vision quickly. Here are some coping strategies. Use a support network. Don't try to do it alone. If your current friends and family are not supportive, find people who are positive and supportive. This is better than being alone or being discouraged. Look for people at your church or synagogue, clubs, American Council of the Blind, and Council of Citizens with Low Vision. If you tend to be shy, some kind of counseling may be helpful. Page 22. Block out embarrassment. We can't help it anyway. The more we go out in life, the more we will make mistakes, like interrupting a conversation or talking to someone who has already left the room. We only go through life once, so we may as well do what we want to do. Life is all about losses and gains. The way we handle losses depends on our personality. Everybody has a story involving frustrations, challenges, and losses. Despite our vision loss, we're more like everyone else. Many people don't understand the implications of vision loss. Therefore, we can talk to visually impaired people about our struggles with vision loss because they are more likely to understand. Accepting help from others can actually feel liberating. It can give a sense of solidarity versus feelings of being anonymous. We can accept our humanity. People need a lot of things from us as we do from them. People feel happier when they're able to help others. We are not hurting others when we need their help. We are giving them a chance to feel happier when they offer us a ride in their car or help us cross a busy street. We are missing a lot because we are visually impaired, yet there is so much richness in life. There are so many aspects we can experience despite vision loss. 
A key factor is our attitude toward life. Do we feel depressed and discouraged? Or can we see life as a skill-building, problem-solving, enriching experience? Adapting to vision loss is not easy. We have to get past it, go through it. We can all lead very full lives, despite vision loss. Page 23, Advocacy. Access to Assets for People with Disabilities. Editor's Note. This article is based on my interview with Tom Foley, who spoke about access to assets and asset building at the California Council of the Blind and California Council of Citizens with Low Vision Convention this autumn. Tom Foley is Program Manager for Access to Assets for the World Institute on Disabilities. The World Institute on Disability, WID, is a nonprofit research, public policy, and advocacy center. This center is dedicated to promoting independence and full economic and societal inclusion of people with disabilities. WID is funded by federal, state, and private foundations. The Access to Assets project of WID is designed to change economic expectations for people with disabilities. Page 24. Asset building is an anti-poverty strategy. It seeks to help people invest in assets so that they may be able to either seek self-employment through beginning a small business, purchase a home, or fund further education. This is the first program in the United States to build bridges from poverty to greater economic status for people with disabilities. This program offers technical assistance, disability outreach, and information and referral in both federal and state arenas. Employment planning, benefit planning, and financial planning are areas addressed. Tom Foley is a tax lawyer who was trained to plan, plot, and scheme for his clients who had to face the IRS. He now uses his skills to plan, plot, and scheme so that people with disabilities can access assets and gain greater quality of life. There is a continuum of asset-building tools. Leveraging these tools is critical. The first tool is access to good quality information, especially information to combat the fear of many that seeking even minimal employment will mean that benefits like Supplemental Security Income, SSI, and Medicaid will be taken away. WID has developed a website, db101.org, on which every question about benefits for Californians is answered. Page 25, DB stands for Disability Benefits. This website even features a calculator on which an individual recipient can determine detailed answers about his or her benefits. Another tool vital to asset building is employment. People have to get a job in order to build assets. In California, only 5.4% of people who receive SSI have any earned income. Similarly, in California, the number of SSI recipients has recently risen from 6.1 million to 7 million. Employment does not mean going out and immediately getting a full-time job. Employment is viewed as a continuum, perhaps beginning with a volunteer position or an internship. These help build resumes and interpersonal connections, and they may lead to part-time work and then perhaps full employment. Once a person is out of the house and working, he or she can access other tools. One of these is the Earned Income Tax Credit, introduced by President Nixon. This plan is intended to motivate people with low income to begin saving money. 
Under this plan, a single individual could receive up to $419 in the current tax year. If this is the first year in which this person is filing taxes, his or her earned income tax credit can be retroactive for the past three years, yielding three times 419 or $1,257. A couple with two children can receive up to $4,000 or $12,000 to $13,000 retroactive for three years. Page 26. WID's access to assets encourages people who receive SSI to get into the game by filing tax returns. If they do, they are entitled to economic stimulus payments available only to people who file taxes. People can get help in filing tax returns by contacting VITA, Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Programs. Federally supported individual development accounts are another important tool to asset building. In these savings accounts, every contributed dollar of earned income is matched. In some states like Kentucky, the matching is 8 to 1. Another benefit to having a savings account is that people will save the money they spend in order to cash their benefit checks, usually $40 per check. 50% of people who receive SSI have no checking accounts, and 75% have no savings accounts, so they must pay to cash their checks. Earned income for people on SSI could come from selling items on eBay, helping people with resumes or with editing, or any other startup work. Any of these sources qualifies people to apply for an Individual Development Account, IDA. Income deposited in federally funded IDAs is not counted as income for SSI and so will not affect benefits. So if a person makes $200, his or her SSI check will not be changed. Page 27. In this way, money is sheltered from SSI for buying a home, securing more education, or starting a small business. Another way to shelter income is to open a custodial account whereby a bank or credit union would hold the title to the account for the individual. For more information about IDAs, go to the web at idanetwork.org. If a person has $900 earned income tax credit and puts this into an IDA for purchasing a home with a 3-to-1 match, his or her $900 equals $2,700. In two years, this becomes $5,400. This could be used as down payment money. People may also qualify for a Section 8 mortgage voucher. A person with a disability in California could also qualify for a loan for $150,000 at 4% interest over 30 years. First-time home buyers can qualify for $50,000 down payment assistance. They are required to repay this loan after 30 years. Using these resources, a person may be able to buy a small house or a condominium for less money per month than paying rent. To subscribe to WID's newsletter, go to equity at wid.org. For more information from Tom Foley, contact him by mail at tom at wid.org. Page 28. Flying the Unfriendly Skies, Airline Travel for Folks with Vision Loss by Bob Ashby. Editor's note, Bob Ashby is Deputy Assistant General Counsel for Regulation and Enforcement, U.S. Department of Transportation. He spoke at the Mid-Atlantic ACB Affiliate Convention. The Air Carrier Access Act regulations are the primary source of disability access rules for air travel. 
air carrier access got started in 1986 with a Supreme Court decision that went the wrong way. The Supreme Court said that Section 504 of the Rehab Act didn't apply to air travel because airlines did not get a check from the federal government despite air traffic control systems and federal subsidies to airports. Working with unaccustomed speed, only 90 days after the Supreme Court decision, Congress passed the Air Carrier Access Act that requires non-discrimination on the basis of disability and air travel. Our original Air Carrier Access regulations came out in 1990. All these regulations were in place before Congress passed the ADA. We are 20 years into the implementation of the Air Carrier Access Act, Last year, these regulations were updated to add coverage for foreign airlines to include people who use oxygen and to help people who are hard of hearing. Page 29. Here are answers to commonly asked questions. Anyone with a disability can sit in any seat except in the exit rows. People traveling with a service animal can choose either a bulkhead seat or a non-bulkhead seat. If you are traveling with a reader assistant, you can make sure that that individual sits next to you. You do not have to agree to use a wheelchair if the person assigned to assist you to get from point A to point B at the airport asks you to do this. The assistance they provide you is required to start at the terminal door and extend through to the gate. It includes help with baggage claim, baggage drop-off, using the ticket counter, even a visit to the restroom, and help with carrying carry-on baggage if you are not able to do this. When you have to transfer to another airline, personnel from the carrier you arrive on are responsible for getting you to the connecting gate. Where do service animals sit? They sit with you unless you are on a very small computer plane and your large animal would block the aisle. Connecting service must be provided promptly. Any delay that causes you to miss your flight is a violation. Page 30. Is assistive technology included in the baggage allotment? Assistive devices do not count toward your carry-on or check baggage limits. Check baggage fees do not apply to those items. Accessible websites. Many airline websites are not fully accessible. The rules specifically say that if a website is not accessible to you, you cannot be charged the extra fee for making a reservation by phone. If there is a discount for using the website and this website is not accessible to you, the airline must give you that discount. Federal Aviation Administration rules require a one-on-one safety briefing for any passenger who may need assistance in exiting the plane. This briefing is to be discreet and inconspicuous. People with disabilities must have the opportunity to pre-board. If you are involuntarily bumped from a flight, you are compensated at twice the fare up to $800 or half that if you get transportation on the next flight. Security. You have to go through the same security as everyone else. Electronic assistive devices get the same treatment as laptops. Ticketing kiosks. Passengers use these if they have no check baggage so that they don't have to stand in line to obtain their boarding pass. Most of these kiosks are not accessible. The airline has to provide someone to help you use the kiosk or put you at the head of the line. Page 31. What happens if there is a problem? Who are you going to call? The Complaint Resolution Officer, CRO, is the person you ask to speak to if you have a complaint concerning the accessibility of a flight. Every airline is required to have a CRO available either in person or by phone at the airport from which they operate. The CRO is the airline's in-house expert on accessibility. 
If the CRO doesn't help you, you can and should file a written complaint with the Air Carrier and the Department of Transportation. The Air Carrier Access Act program is the best resource and the most successful civil rights enforcement program in the Department of Transportation. On weekdays from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can call a hotline, 800-778-4838. At other times, call 202-366-2220, a regular phone line where you can leave a voicemail. My phone number is 202-366-9310. Finally, there is a website at airconsumer.ost.gov. This website has a wealth of information about this program. We have rules. We have means of enforcing them. We have the staff dedicated to deal with problems that occur. Page 32, Quiet Cars and Pedestrian Safety by Jean Lozano. In order to resolve the problem of pedestrian safety and quiet cars, objective and independent research is needed from different sources. This research is to be aimed at developing some kind of audible signal to alert pedestrians of the presence of quiet cars. The National Safety Transportation Administration held a hearing on June 23, 2008, to determine if pedestrian safety in quiet cars is indeed an issue. Stakeholders attended this meeting. Representatives of the blindness community, of academia, orientation and mobility instructors, automotive manufacturers, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Transportation all presented their points of view. The American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind are both in agreement that quiet cars present a threat to the safety of pedestrians. Now a federal bill is needed so that the National Safety Transportation Administration does something besides study this matter to death. People who purchase and drive Prius and other hybrids seem more aware of pedestrian safety, but this is not enough. There is so little data recording conflicts between pedestrians and motorists. Unless there is a serious injury, the police and witnesses are not involved. Therefore, records are not kept. There are more records for traffic conflicts involving pets than people. Data involving pedestrians would certainly motivate the need for action to reduce the hazards of quiet cars. Page 33. Terminology. What should you call a person with a disability? By Yoji Cole. Copyright Diversity, Inc. Editor's note, in her discussion of terminology relative to disability, Yoji Cole refers to the National Federation of the Blind. This organization does not acknowledge the condition we call low vision. What's in a name, or better yet, what's in a term to people with disabilities using improper terminology can be as insulting as deliberately mispronouncing their names. Everyone should strive to make sure they're using the appropriate terminology because it makes a difference in terms of stigma and how the world views people with disabilities, says Kurt Decker, Executive Director of the National Disability Rights Network. Page 34. Stigma, prejudice, and stereotypes are a three-headed monster that makes it too easy to see a person's difference negatively rather than positively. People with disabilities are stigmatized or labeled as not being able to accomplish as much as someone who does not have a disability, which leads to prejudice against hiring people with disabilities. The label couldn't be further from the truth. 
According to facts culled by the United Nations, people with disabilities in the U.S. workforce have higher retention rates, equal or higher performance ratings, and less absenteeism or lateness than workers without disabilities. To help head off such stereotypes, employers must be hyper-aware of ensuring that their employees know the proper way to refer to people in all underrepresented groups, such as people with disabilities. When speaking about a person with a disability... You should always refer to the person first and not the disability, says Decker. Don't refer to a person with a disability as that disabled person or that blind woman or that amputee. Instead, say, for example, that person who is blind. Page 35. By putting the person before the disability, the disability does not define the person, says Nancy Starnes, chairman and president of the National Organization on Disability. When referencing a person who has a a disability, start with the phrase, people with, because saying people with a disability or people with a hearing impairment implies that they are not being defined solely by their disability. Starnes notes there are 54 million Americans who have a disability, many of whom have hidden disabilities in a corporate setting where a person's background or current state in life is not always known. It is best to use the proper terminology and phrasing to ensure people do not misconstrue what is being said. Respect is shown by referring to people in the manner in which they want to be referred, especially when referencing a traditionally underrepresented group. People with disabilities are also extremely diverse, representing every racial, ethnic, and gender group. Because people with disabilities are not monolithic, each individual might have a different idea of how he or she wants his or her disability referenced. Page 36. Within the blind community, for example, some people prefer the term visually impaired or a person with a visual impairment. But the National Federation of the Blind, NFB, says people who cannot see should simply call themselves blind. It's not something to be ashamed of, says Chris Danielson, public relations specialist for NFB. NFB reasons that when a blind person does not want to be called blind, the word and physical state of not being able to see is enveloped in a negative connotation. Using euphemisms for a state of being that means nothing more or less and not being able to see with your eyes makes the negative connotations associated with being blind worse, says Danielson. A lot of people want to use visually impaired, but we believe that is unnecessary. Decker points out that terms and labels come and go as a community's power develops and people become more aware of the community and its issues. Modernism comes along in terms once acceptable or not acceptable, says Decker. The general public must stay on top of the most appropriate name. For example, we used to say mental retardation, but we're now using developmental disabilities. Starnes remembers when terms handicapped, handy-abled, and differently-abled were in use. The term people with disabilities is probably the safest because it is incorporated into the civil rights legislation that covers people with disabilities, says Starnes, but that doesn't mean every person you meet will be happy with the term. People who want to be safe and sensitive should simply ask a person with a disability what terminology makes them most comfortable when their disability is being referenced, adds Starnes. So if you know someone has a disability, ask, How do I describe your disability or address you when talking about your disability? You'll get a number of different answers, says Starnes, but you will know how to best represent your friend, family member, or co-worker who has a disability. Page 37, Science and Health. 
support group for women living with breast cancer and vision loss. Are you a woman living with breast cancer? Would you like to be part of a caring community who understands your unique experience as a woman with vision loss, also dealing with cancer? The ACB Women's Concerns Committee is sponsoring a support group for you by phone. Page 38. Meetings will normally be scheduled on the first Tuesday of each month from 5.30 to 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 8.30 Eastern, on a toll-free conference call number. But the first meeting will be held on Tuesday, December 16, 2008, at 5.30 Pacific Time. This group will not give any medical advice or provide therapy. It will foster a safe and positive atmosphere in which to discuss relevant issues and support one another. If you are interested, please read on for instructions on how to access the conference call for the group. To attend the Breast Cancer Support Group for Women, call the following toll-free number, 866 633 8638. Then put in the group identification number spelling the word support. That is 7877678. If you have any trouble using this number, please do not use zero, but instead hang up and call this number 650-969-3155 for assistance. When calling, you must verbally identify yourself and your city location when prompted by the system in order to further ensure confidentiality and so that we know who is on the conference call. The group is scheduled from 5.30 to 7 p.m. Pacific Time on the first Tuesday evening of the month. The first meeting, however, will be held on Tuesday, December 16th, also at 5.30 Pacific. The next meeting will be held January 6th. We ask and expect everyone who attends group to observe strict confidentiality for anything discussed during group so that everyone can feel comfortable sharing what they choose to. This group is being facilitated by three social workers who are volunteering their services and who are also ACB members. We anticipate that this group will be an uplifting experience for all and look forward to seeing you by phone. Page 39, Choosing Lighting That Works for Your Vision, by Dr. Bill Takeshita. Editor's note, Dr. Takeshita spoke about lighting at the California Council of Citizens with Low Vision Convention. Without light, there is no vision. Light is the most critical element in vision. Photoreceptor cells in the inside surface of the eye, the retina, convert light into electrical signals that are processed by the brain. When people suffer from eye diseases such as macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, retinitis pigmentosa, and optic nerve disease, the information sent by the eyes to the brain is altered. Page 40. Fortunately for most people with low vision adjustments to the lighting can significantly improve visual function. In some cases, increasing the lighting can help people to read, write, and perform detailed tasks, while in other situations, changing the light bulbs can reduce the glare and improve visual comfort. One of the most common mistakes patients with low vision do is they install 150-watt incandescent light bulbs in the ceiling and remove the cover. Although the bulb may be brighter, the removal of the cover causes glare, and the distance between the light and the reading material is too far for effective reading. 
What is light? Light consists of small packets of electromagnetic radiation called photons. Photons travel in a wave pattern, and the length of the wave determines what type of light is produced. The shortest wavelength of light is called ultraviolet radiation and is not visible by the human eye. Successively longer wavelengths of energy produce blue, green, yellow, orange, and red light. Page 41. These wavelengths of light are called the visible spectrum because the human eye sees these wavelengths. When each of these colors is present together, it produces white light, such as the light produced by light bulbs. Photons that travel in longer wavelengths than visible light produce non-visible infrared radiation. What types of light are available? There are primarily two main categories of light, natural light from the sun and artificial light from light bulbs. Many people with low vision report that they are able to read small print when they read outdoors under direct sunlight. This is because the brightness of the sun enhances vision for many people with low vision. The use of natural light to illuminate your home, office, or school can be extremely helpful. In areas where there is not sufficient natural light, artificial light must be produced by light bulbs. Today, there are many different types of light bulbs, each which require a unique fixture. The most common type of light bulb is an ordinary incandescent light bulb. These are very popular because most table lamps and light sockets will use incandescent bulbs with a screw-in base. They generally produce a reddish-white light, but they use a lot of energy and become very hot. Page 42. Compact fluorescent light bulbs are replacing the conventional light bulb because fluorescent bulbs produce more light, use less energy, and they do not become hot. Low-voltage halogen bulbs are another very effective type of bulb that produces a very bright light, and they render colors accurately, making them excellent for use when painting, sewing, and reading. LED, light-emitting diodes, are also becoming more popular for use in table lamps and reading lamps because they use very little energy, last a long time, and they do not produce much heat. Why do some lights produce a different color? What color bulb is best? Light bulbs produce photons of different wavelengths and colors. Together, they generate a white light. However, in some bulbs, there may be more red photons, and the light may appear reddish. Other bulbs may produce more blue, and the light may have a blue tint to it. The color of the whitish light can affect how people with low vision see. For example, some people with low vision will prefer a light that produces a reddish-white light, similar to that of an ordinary incandescent light bulb, while others will prefer a cool fluorescent light with a bluish-white color. Page 43. People who have corneal disease, cataracts, vitreous hemorrhages due to diabetic retinopathy and retinopathy are bothered by lights that generate too much blue light because blue tends to scatter more in the eye, causing glare. Low vision optometrists and ophthalmologists will test color vision, glare sensitivity, contrast vision, and inspect the tissues of the eye to determine what color light is best for each patient. In addition to the color of the light, it is very important to know how bright the light should be to maximize vision. Some people with retinitis pigmentosa and glaucoma may prefer a very bright light, while people with macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy may prefer a dimmer light for their living room. Similarly, some people with optic nerve disease can read best when using a bright desk lamp, while others with albinism and aniridia will prefer to read without the use of a desk lamp. Thus, the brightness and color of the light must be determined for general lighting as well as task lighting by the eye doctor. 
Does light damage the photoreceptors, and is blue light going to be worse for people who have RP? For years, scientists and researchers have studied the effects of light on the tissues of the retina. In animal studies, it has been shown that ultraviolet and blue wavelengths of light can cause cataracts and damage the cells of the retina. In the 1980s, it was hypothesized that light accelerates the loss of vision among people with retinitis pigmentosa, a progressive retinal degenerative disease. Page 44. To test this hypothesis, subjects were fit with a contact lens only in one eye to prevent light from entering the eye. The results of this study revealed that there was no difference between the eyes exposed to light as compared to the eyes that were protected from light. This study put people with RP at ease because many people with RP during this time were afraid to expose their eyes to light for the fear that it would promote the loss of their vision. Many would avoid going outdoors, they kept their lights off in their home, and they avoided fluorescent light. Today, many doctors continue to recommend that all people with retinitis pigmentosa, macular degeneration, and other retinal problems protect their eyes from the ultraviolet radiation and blue light. On the other hand, there are many eye doctors and researchers who do not feel that blue light emitted from fluorescent lights promote blindness. They argue that the intensity of light from light bulbs is minimal, and eight hours of exposure to fluorescent light is equivalent to one minute in the sunlight. Fortunately, the retina is protected from ultraviolet and blue radiation by the cornea and the internal crystalline lens of the eye. These tissues filter the ultraviolet light and the crystalline lens filters the blue light. Page 45. Only those people who have had the crystalline lens removed during cataract surgery do not have the natural lens to protect the retina from blue light. For these people, an implant lens that filters the blue and ultraviolet radiation should be implanted. In addition, low-vision optometrists and ophthalmologists can prescribe glasses that will filter these wavelengths of light to provide maximal protection. What types of light bulbs are best for people with low vision? There is no one single type of light bulb that is best for all people with low vision. Depending on the eye condition, incandescent, halogen, fluorescent, or LED bulbs may be best. Conventional incandescent light bulbs are being replaced with compact fluorescent light bulbs because these bulbs use less energy and last up to three times longer. Compact fluorescent bulbs are available in different colors and brightness and are excellent for providing general lighting in the living room, bedroom, and dens. Low-voltage halogen bulbs are gaining popularity because they produce a very bright light and are also available in different colors. These bulbs are great when used in track lights to illuminate work areas in the kitchen or study. LED bulbs are excellent for reading desk lamps because they produce a bright white light without generating too much heat. Page 46. How do I select a light bulb? When shopping for a light bulb, it is helpful to read the label on the box and choose a bulb that has the brightness, color, and energy efficiency that is best for you. The first thing to look for is the brightness. Lumens is a term used to describe the brightness of a bulb. A bulb that has more lumens puts out more light than a bulb with less lumens. By comparing the lumens produced by different bulbs, one can determine which bulb is brighter. Wattage is a term that describes how much electricity the bulb uses. 
for people who have RP or glaucoma and keep their lights on all day, it is important to use bulbs that use less electricity or wattage. The compact fluorescent light bulb or fluorescent light will be much more affordable to use than ordinary incandescent light bulbs. The color of the bulb is another important feature to look at. Page 47. The temperature measured in degrees Kelvin describes the color of a bulb. A bulb labeled with a temperature of 2700 Kelvin produces a reddish-white light and is similar to the color produced by an ordinary incandescent light bulb. 3500 degrees Kelvin is a more neutral yellow-white color and is one of the more popular color lights. 4100 degrees produces a greenish-white color and has a cooler appearance, while bulbs with a temperature of 5,000 degrees Kelvin and above produce a bluer light and are called full-spectrum. Although manufacturers report that full-spectrum lights replicate sunlight, they do not, and some researchers feel that full-spectrum lights can accelerate damage to the retinal cells. However, the FDA has not taken full-spectrum lights off of the market, and many people with low vision report that they can see better when using these bulbs. What recommendations can you give on specific lighting? To maximize the use of vision, it is helpful to use different types of light fixtures and bulbs for different types of lighting. General lighting is the type of lighting used to provide sufficient light to walk safely and locate objects at home or at the office. Page 48. Accent lighting is used to highlight pictures, paintings, or furniture in a room, while task lighting is the type of lighting used for reading, cooking, or performing specific tasks. Here are some basic recommendations regarding lighting. 1. For general lighting in the living room, use table lamps and torsier lamps with a compact fluorescent light bulb. Often, a 27-watt, 3,500-degree compact fluorescent bulb works well. 2. Position table and torchier lamps such that there are very few shadows or dark spots on the floor. 3. If you are remodeling, use recessed lights such as the R40 or low-voltage halogen lights, Position these lights about five feet apart to provide excellent general room illumination. Place the lights on a dimmer switch to customize the brightness. If using the low-voltage lighting, use a Solux MR16 3500 or 4750-watt bulb. 4. For people who prefer a bright kitchen, use a four-foot fluorescent fixture with four fluorescent bulbs. Page 49, ask your doctor which temperature will be best for your vision. Above sinks, counters, and work areas, use track lights. With an MR16 low-voltage bulb, these lights can direct a bright beam of light on your work areas. The Solux MR16 50-watt 4700 degrees Kelvin is often most helpful. 5. In study rooms for reading, use a desk lamp with a fluorescent or LED bulb. Ask your doctor which color temperature is best for your eyes. Often, the fluorescent bulb with 3,500 degrees Kelvin and 22-watt bulb is very helpful, but others may prefer a full-spectrum light bulb such as the Verilux or Ott lamps. 6. For closets, installation of track lights with low-voltage halogen bulbs with a temperature of 3,500 or 4,700 can help to identify colors of clothes. 7. For reading in a favorite chair, the installation of a track light with low-voltage MR16 bulbs mounted on the ceiling behind the reader can be very helpful. For more information on lighting and vision, go to the web at 
A-I-R-S-L-A.org and listen to the podcast, What's New in Low Vision, Lighting and Vision. Page 50. Studies suggest ways to preserve your sight. Editor's note, this article is reprinted from Dr. Andrew Wild's Self-Healing, August 2008. The number of vision-impaired baby boomers is expected to double within the next three decades, according to a new report from Prevent Blindness America and the National Eye Institute. Women may be hardest hit. They account for two-thirds of the 3.6 million Americans 40 and older currently experiencing vision impairment. Many eye diseases have few or no early warning signs, making regular eye exams imperative. Everyone should follow precautionary measures proven to protect eyesight, including wearing sunglasses, not smoking, eating an antioxidant-rich diet, and being physically active. Below, I'll discuss some recent developments that warrant a closer look. Diet and AMD. Age-related macular degeneration, AMD, a painless disorder that gradually affects central vision, is the number one cause of vision loss of people over 60. Page 51. A new analysis of nine studies of almost 90,000 people found that eating fish at least twice a week cut the risk of developing AMD. DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid present in cell membranes, is highly concentrated in the retina and vital to eye health. Plus, a 2007 study suggests that people with high glycemic diets are at greater risk of AMD. So limit quick digesting carbs such as foods made with flour and sugar. And if you have AMD, taking a specific formula of antioxidants and zinc called the AREDS, age-related eye diseases formula, can slow the disease's progression. A recent study of 332 AMD patients found that one-third were either not taking the supplement or not using correct dosages. An ophthalmologist can advise you if an AREDS-based supplement would be right for you. LASIK concerns. Laser-assisted in situ keratomyelitis, in which the clear cover of the eye is cut and lifted in order to reshape the cornea and correct vision, is generally quite safe, yet it's not without risk. And recent hearings by the FDA have given voice to those with rare complications that might have been prevented if patients were properly screened. This magnifies the importance of reading the fine print before having LASIK. Be sure your surgery is done by an expert and is indicated for your eye problems. For example, you may not be a good candidate if your cornea is too thin, suffer eye dryness, or if you wear bifocals. Patients who have experienced complications after LASIK can report them to the FDA. Call 800-FDA-1088. Page 52, Recipes. Easy Eggnog Pound Cake. 1. 18.25-ounce package yellow cake mix. 1. 4-serving size package instant vanilla pudding and pie filling mix. 3-quarter cup Borden eggnog. 3-quarter cup vegetable oil. 4 eggs. 1-half teaspoon ground nutmeg. Powdered sugar, if desired. 1. Preheat oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. In large mixing bowl, combine cake mix, pudding mix, Borden eggnog and oil. Beat at low speed of electric mixer until moistened. Add eggs and nutmeg. Beat at medium-high speed 4 minutes. 2. Pour into greased and floured 10-inch fluted or tube pan. 3. Bake 40 to 45 minutes or until wooden pick inserted near center comes out clean. 4. Cool 10 minutes. Remove from pan. 
cool completely, sprinkle with powdered sugar if desired. Page 53, Pumpkin Currant Bread. One cup plus two tablespoons all-purpose flour, one-half cup granulated sugar or Splenda, two tablespoons grated orange peel, one teaspoon baking soda, one-half teaspoon baking powder, one cup canned pumpkin, no sugar added, three large eggs lightly beaten or three-quarter cup egg substitute, one-quarter cup vegetable oil, three-quarter cup dried currants plumped and drained, one-and-a-half ounces walnut chopped, Preheat oven to 375 degrees in a large mixing bowl. Combine flour, sugar, orange peel, baking soda, and baking powder. Set this aside. In a separate large mixing bowl, combine pumpkin, eggs, and oil, stirring until blended. Add pumpkin mixture to flour mixture and stir until moistened. Add currants and walnuts and stir to combine. Spray an 8.5 by 4.5 by 2.5 inch non-stick loaf pan with non-stick cooking spray and transfer batter to pan. Bake in middle of center oven rack for 50 minutes until golden and a toothpick inserted in center comes out dry. Set pan on wire rack and let cool 12 servings. Note. When you eat an orange, remove the zest from orange before you peel it and store zest in a small jar in your freezer until you need it for this or any other recipe. Page 54. Book Announcement. Seeing in the Darkness. Gordana Sivajic has written and published a book, Seeing in the Darkness. In this book, she tells the story of her 18-year-old daughter Maria and the struggles and efforts to save and improve her life. Maria was born prematurely with many health issues, and Gordana wanted to share her story with all parents who care for children who have disabilities and who may feel hopeless, discouraged, and afraid of the future. Seeing in the Darkness is available through Amazon.com. It may soon be available in alternative formats. A part of the proceeds of every book sold will be donated to the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind, where Maria attends school, and also to the Lighthouse of Central Florida. Visit the web at gordanabook.com link to Seeing in the Darkness. Page 55, Assistive Technology Research Seeks Mobility Devices for Independent Travel. Brian Higgins has established a new research organization, IntelliSite, in Los Altos, California. His organization is conducting research that will produce a mobility device for people who are blind, seeing impaired, no longer independent because of aging. He maintains that technology has reached a point where we can provide people with a high-tech mobility device. Brian and his organization are working with GPS, ultrasonic sensors, an electronic compass, infrared laser sensor, and video streaming. Brian Higgins has retinitis pigmentosa. He is a blind rehabilitation specialist at the Veterans Administration Healthcare System at Palo Alto, California. He now bikes to work every day, collecting data for this research project. He is learning how to deal with side roads, road objects, traffic lights, curbs, holes, stationary objects, and moving objects. He wants to attain clear path detection. Brian started out riding his bike with two ultrasonic sensors and a Trekker GPS. His immediate goal is to outfit a Segway with sensors and GPS for people who are visually impaired and for the elderly who are no longer able to drive a car.
page 56. Using a process called dynamic stabilization, the Segway HT works with human equilibrium and responds to movements. Lean forward and the HT will accelerate, tilt backward, and it will come to a stop. You can also perform full turns, achieve speeds of up to 12.5 miles per hour, and get up to 17 miles out of a single charge. The first HT model weighs 80 pounds and has a 250-pound passenger payload. Future versions are expected to support over 300 pounds. It also features an adjustable control shaft, intelligent key technology, a private code which starts and locks your HT, an 8-inch high platform, silica wheels, each with an independent emission-free engine, and perhaps most importantly, five gyroscopes and two tilt sensors which work together to ensure balance and safety on varying terrains. For more information about Segway, go to the web at segway.com. Page 57, Resources, Air Carrier Access Act. On weekdays from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., 800-778-4838. At other times, 202-366-2220. On the web, airconsumer.ost.gov. Bob Ashby, 202-366-9310. Disability benefits on the web at db101.org. Answers to every question about benefits for Californians. Individual development account on the web at idanetwork.org. LASIK report complaints to 800-FDA-1088. Lighting and vision on the web at airsla.org. Seeing in the darkness on the web g-o-r-d-a-n-a book.com segway at segway.com support group for women living with breast cancer and vision loss 866-633-8638 group identification number spelling the word support that is 787-7678 if you have any trouble using this number call 650-969-3155 for assistance World Institute on Disabilities Newsletter, equity at wid.org, Tom Foley, Tom at wid.org. Page 58, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, 2009 membership application with lines for the fill-in of name, address, city, state, zip code, country, phone, email, membership status. I am, choose new member, renewing my membership, life member of CCLVI, life member of ACB. Visual status, I am a check person with low or no vision or fully sighted person. I wish to receive the CCLVI publication, vision access in, choose large print, cassette, email, do not send. Please send the American Council of the Blind Braille form in select large print, email, cassette, braille, computer disk, do not send. Dues structure, payable in up to three annual installments. Check individual, $15, organization or agency, $25, life member, $150. Payment due, enter amount for annual dues or life membership dues, fuller installment, or additional donations and total amount. Make check or money order payable to CCLVI and send to CCLVI Treasurer Mike Godino, 104 Tilrose Avenue, Malvern, New York, 
11565-2024. Page 59, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, 1155 15th Street Northwest, Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005, phone 800-733-2258, on the web at cclvi.org. Officers and Directors, 2008 to 2009. President John Horst, 08 to 10, first term, 249 Holly Street, Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, 17022-1621, home phone 717-367-6328, work 877-617-7407, on the web pcb1 at paonline.com. First Vice President Richard Rueda, Union City, California. Second Vice President Barbara Milleville, Vienna, Virginia. Secretary Kathy Casey, Albany, New York. Treasurer Mike Godino, Malvern, New York. Past President Bernice Kandarian. Directors Coletta Davis, Anaheim, California. Lisa Drizwuki, Freeport, New York. Lindsay Hastings, San Diego, California. Jim Jirak, Omaha, Nebraska. Jesse Johnson, Jacksonville, Florida. Jane Cardis, Ukiah, California. Brian Petrates, Brownsburg, Indiana. Donna Pomerantz, Pasadena, California. Fred Scheigert, Alexandria, Virginia. Editor Joyce Kleiber, Wayne, Pennsylvania. Webmaster Joel Isaac, Irvine, California. Chapter Contacts, California Council of Citizens with Low Vision, CCCLV, Bernice Kandarian, President, 650-969-3155, on the web, B-E-R-N-I-C-E, at T-S-O-F-T dot net. Delaware Valley Council of Citizens with Low Vision, DVCCLV, Joyce Kleiber, 610-688-8398, or jmkleiber at hotmail.com. Florida Council of Citizens with Low Vision, Barbara Grill, 941-966-7056 at grillbh at comcast.net. Metropolitan Council of Low Vision Individuals, MCLVI, Ken Stewart, President, 845-986-2955 at cclvi at yahoo.com. National Capital Citizens with Low Vision, NCCLV, Barbara Milleville, President, 703-645-8716 at nccLV at yahoo.com. New York State Council of Citizens with Low Vision, NYSCCLV, Kathy Casey, President, 518-462-9487, or KCASEY03 at nycap.rr.com.